Well, hi. Have you ever missed an important message or sign? I remember being in a multi-storey building trying to find some toilets once. And when I found the toilets, I couldn't find any urinals there. And I thought, that's a bit strange. And you can imagine my shock and shame when a female emerged from a cubicle and told me the gents were on the next floor. Or maybe you didn't see a speed sign and you were shocked to find an infringement notice in your letterbox. Maybe you overlooked um, a, a small print section in a contract and found yourself afterwards out of pockets by hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars. Or worse, you ignored the warning signs and the warnings of your friends and family about a relationship and the signs of a controlling personality. And you found yourself then trapped in a horrible, abusive relationship. Missing or refusing to heed signs and messages has consequences. The current coronavirus pandemic shows us how important it is to heed warning signs. We, we now see in Victoria, um, struggling with a second wave, uh, lockdowns, uh, um, just real problems. Uh, the whole greater Melbourne area um, now going back to higher restrictions for the next six weeks. The pandemic highlights the effects of self-centred attitudes as effectively as anything in living memory. And in doing so, it illustrates to us the importance of the warnings here in Hebrews 12. Today's passage warns us about something more important than COVID-19 and with far more serious consequences. Chapter 12 of Hebrews uh, began by urging us to persevere and throw off sinful entanglements, anything that would hinder us from running the race. And Jacob warned us last week uh, about that and the need to persevere and to embrace God's discipline. Well, there's a change now halfway through chapter 12. And the change is from urging to warning. And if you haven't had a chance to read Hebrews 12, 14 to 29 just yet, and you might like to pause and do that now. Well, clearly, this is not a feel-good passage. There is the strongest warning here for every Christian. The writer is upfront about how we can miss the grace of God if we don't listen up to God. And he's saying, in effect, prize what you've got. Don't give it away. Hold on to it. Sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until we're at risk of losing it or after we've even given it away. The heart of today's passage is verses 18 to 24, where we see what we have been given through the new covenant under Jesus in contrast with the old covenant under Moses. So what does God's grace achieve through the new covenant? Well, verses 18 to 24 are a series of contrasting statements between the first and the second covenants. You'll see you have not come, but you have come. 
So you've not come to a mountain that can be visited and touched. You have come to Mount Zion that, that cannot be touched. So verses 18 and 22 are a contrast. And then verses 18 through to 21 follow through. And verses 22 to 24 follow on further. So with the first covenant, we see Mount Sinai that can be visited and touched. It's burning with fire. There's darkness, gloom and storm, trumpet blasts. There's people begging for God's voice to stop. Moses is trembling with fear. This covenant conveyed a sense of shame, of guilt, of fear because of unholiness. This covenant was presided over by a succession of very imperfect priests, high priests, who, who needed to be succeeded because they died. And it began with Moses and Aaron. Abel's blood cried out for God to judge his brother. But if we look under the new covenant, we see Jesus' sprinkled blood uh, covering God's mercy seat. And, and bringing mercy and forgiveness to his brothers and sisters forever. We see a Mount Zion that cannot be touched now. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The church of the firstborn. God's firstborn people. And that will become clearer in a little bit later. Uh, whose names are written in heaven. This covenant conveys a clear sense of worshipful joy and praise for our holy salvation and contrast completely with the first covenant. What the first covenant could not achieve under Moses, God has done for us through Jesus in the new covenant. At the heart of the gospel message is this new covenant reality that Jesus became sin for us reconciling us to God and guaranteeing us a lasting kingdom. So we could look at it in terms of the place that we're brought to. We've been brought to the city of the living God. We've been made citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We can look at it in terms of the inhabitants. Believers are united with the holy angels in the presence of the triune God, the ruler. We're brought to God. That we're justified before the judge of all the earth. The mediator. We're brought to Jesus, made perfect through the lasting effect of his sprinkled blood. We can look at the message. We receive a much better word than the blood of Abel, which cried out purely for justice and judgment. Not cries for judgment, but songs of, of joy of encouragement, of celebration for grace and mercy through Jesus. So as we've been going through this Hebrew series, the wonder and privilege of what we have under the new covenant has become so much clearer to me. It's shone very brightly in my heart. So much so that it's intensified my willingness to face up to the sin that's still lodge very deeply in me but it's also made me far more desirous of Jesus return it's made me want to yearn more appropriately like the Bible describes even so come Lord Jesus 
it's clear to me that the power to deal with sin is supplied under the new covenant, unlike the first covenant. I'm not powerless in the face of sin and its incessant persistence in my heart to try and have its own way and take drag me away from God. When I look back over the years of my walk with God, I can see that he's been at work in me. I can see that he's begun a good work and, and I know he's promised to complete it. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I also know that I'm not what I used to be. I'm changing. And it's because the new covenant is at work by the power of God's spirit. That's the difference between the old and the new covenant. We have armour for the battle. We have strength for the fight. We have wisdom for living. We have a future and a hope that cannot be taken away from us. Hallelujah. Main danger is that we don't appreciate what we've received in this new covenant. It's so easy to become discouraged or disillusioned, even bitter about things. We get discouraged with ourselves at times. We might become disillusioned with the church. We might even get angry at God because we think things aren't going well and, and we might feel that we deserve better than this. We can be sorely tempted to give up and walk away from our glorious inheritance. But when I look at what the new covenant has delivered, I'd be a fool to give it away. An absolute fool. Personally, I know more than a handful of people, including ex-pastors, who have done just that. They've given it away. They've walked away from the faith. But when I look at their lives now, I'm not convinced that it's been worth it. I don't see anything to replace the privilege and the joy and the encouragement of the new covenant. I see less than, not better than. I don't see them rejoicing with angels in the assembly of the firstborn. They might be gathered with their mates having a, having a pint of beer after a game of golf. But I don't think that can compare with what we're promised under the new covenant. I don't see them gathering with the church of the firstborn, celebrating the hope of forgiveness, confident of, of acceptance and mercy with, from God. I see more like is described under the old covenant of gloom and doom and don't speak another word. I, I see a shrinking back, not a pressing on. To me, they look like those who've gone backwards, not forwards. And I don't want to be like that. I can't see that that price is worth it. And this is precisely the line of thought that comes up next in Hebrews 12. Verses 14 to 17, the writer is saying in effect, don't give up what God's grace provides. Look at verses 14 and 15. 
Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Notice the words here. Make every effort. See to it. No one will see the Lord. Cause trouble and defile many occurs as well. This is vitally important for all of us. Hebrews 12, 14 to 29 is intended as a gigantic wake-up call. All of us get tired and frustrated at some point. But we can receive mercy and grace from on high to strengthen us in our time of need. This 2 Corinthians 7, 1 is really one of my go-to verses. It says, since we have these promises... And the promises are described at the end of 2 Corinthians 6, those last three verses. I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and I'll be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have those kinds of promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We can't honk twice and say we love Jesus and then wander off doing our own thing and pretend that we really are one of God's children. God won't be a party to that. We can't walk away from even after many years of walking with God and think that that's okay and there'll be no consequences. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. I wouldn't mind a dollar for the number of times I've heard Christians say something like this. Even though my son or daughter or husband or wife or brother or sister or friend didn't seem to be walking with God when when they were younger they made a a commitment to Jesus they they prayed the sinner's prayer so even though they've died now I know they're right with God that's flatly contradicted by what we read here we're told without holiness no one will see the Lord The essence of holiness is dedication to God, being separated for his exclusive service, becoming like the saviour you serve under the increasing influence of the Holy Spirit. Where there is no observable holiness, we have no right to assume that a person is a child of God. When anyone is born again, that is literally born from above, born from heaven, they receive the Holy Spirit of God. And the spirit of holiness will not sit idly by in a person's heart doing nothing, not making changes. The Holy Spirit brings forth fruit. The fruit of the Spirit in our life is the best evidence that we can have that we belong to God as one of his children. Verse 15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. 
The bitter root that defiles many is a reference back to Deuteronomy 29, which describes the person whose heart turns away from God to serve other gods. And it says they're like a root among you that produces bitter poison. Bitter roots think to themselves, I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. But the next verse in Deuteronomy 29 says, The Lord will never forgive them. That's a sobering thought. Immensely sobering. Verse 16 lists sexual immorality and godlessness as bitter roots. Sexual immorality works its way out in a person's life like a virus. Verse 16 warns, and it says, don't be like that. Don't be sexually immoral. Sexual indiscretion has a way of leading you further than you wanted, holding you longer than you intended, and hurting you more than you ever imagined. It begins with a thought that is indulged instead of resisted. That seed of an idea may appear nice and attractive, but don't water that seed. Don't go there. Don't nurture it in your heart because it's like playing with fire. You'll get burned. Sexual immorality doesn't stack up before God, the judge of all who created us in his image as sexual beings and formed us for himself. If anyone listening here is contemplating leaving your husband or wife, I say, don't. The grass may look greener on the other side of the fence, but it's got its own problems. Anyone here contemplating sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, I say to you, don't do it. Don't go there. No matter how many others might be sleeping around, it isn't God's desire for us. It isn't how he's formed us. And it will earn his displeasure. Like COVID-19, sin has insidious consequences. Satan will present the bait, but he'll hide the hook. He'll disguise the consequences. Unless you repent, your conscience will be seared. You'll be set back before God. You won't, you won't be progressing on, you'll be drawing back. You won't be increasing in holiness. Your prayer life will suffer a terrible blow. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Sexual immorality is not God's intention and it's a form of rebellion and doing things our own way. And we warned not to go there. We'll be left dangerously weakened and vulnerable because the immune system of God's spirit in us will be compromised. If anyone listening today has done these things, I think you know exactly what I'm saying. You've tasted that bitter root. You know the effects and it's unpleasant. But under the new covenant, there's hope, real hope. If we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. At the heart of the gospel message is this new covenant that, that forgives and reconciles and renews through repentance and faith. When we repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives us our sins and purifies us from all unrighteousness through that precious blood of Jesus. So this is deeply, deeply encouraging for us. We can be God's firstborn sons and daughters, cleansed from our defilement, forgiven for our iniquity, reconciled to a holy God. Next we see the writer um, contrasting the godly life with the godless life by reminding us about Esau in the book of Genesis. With all his faults, Esau's twin brother Jacob was commended in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. But here Esau, the other twin, is not commended. In fact, we're warned not to be like Esau. Presumably Esau was born just a few minutes uh, before his brother. He's a, he's a twin. But the privilege of being firstborn, the firstborn to Isaac, their father, fell to Esau, not to Jacob. However, one day Esau, who was a mighty hunter and He'd been out and in the fields and, and he must have been hunting him probably out for days. He, he came in utterly famished. Genesis 25 tells us about this. And he's so starving hungry, he thought he was about to die. And Jacob had prepared a meal. And Jacob said to him, I'll give you this meal if you'll give me your, your birthright as the firstborn. Listen to what Genesis says Jacob thought and what he did. Here's his thinking. Look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? So he swore an oath, selling his birthright to Jacob, and Esau despised his birthright. Later, when his blind father Isaac was on his deathbed, he asked Esau, his favourite son, to prepare his favourite meal before he would announce a prophetic blessing over him as the firstborn son. But Jacob sneakily came in and prepared a meal, another meal, and took it to his father, pretended to be his, his brother, and deceived his father. And Isaac unwittingly gave the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob. When Esau found out about this, he was, he was angry. And he was so upset, he came into his father Isaac and he knelt down before him and he's weeping and wailing and he says, Oh my father, oh my father, don't you have a blessing for me? But all that that Isaac could give him was kind of a, a paltry leftover thing that was more like a cursing than a blessing. There was no second blessing. He was rejected. 
This is what missing the grace of God is like. People who live godless lives like Esau ignore what they have from God and give it away in the heat of the moment or for short-term gain. They become like a pain in the neck to God as Esau was to his parents. And that's tragic. No amount of self-pitying tears will make God change his mind. We're told here specifically he could not receive the blessing even though he sought it with tears. When we don't value what God gives us under the new covenant and we treat it as a common thing or worse, we are godless. God's grace does not fail, but we can fail to depend on God's grace. He is ever faithful and true. But if we reject him, he will reject us. God is not like our faithful pet dog, We're just going where we want him to go, or we throw a stick and say fetch and he doesn't. He, he, he's not our pet dog. He, he's not just the lamb of God, he's the lion of Judah. And when that lion roars, we better listen. That root of bitterness produces only tears of resentment and empty bitter hearts because God won't play our games. God won't go along with our sinful intentions. He draws a line in the sand. Anyone who walks away from the living God and despises his inheritance and influences others to do the same will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from his presence. Wow, that is sobering. So, that's why in this chapter, the final section is, hold on to the grace of God. Look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. We see again a contrast between the first covenant and the new covenant. It goes like this. If Israel didn't escape God's punishment for their disobedience under Moses, what makes us think we'll escape God's punishment if we disobey Jesus, the Son of the living God? The contrast here is between created things and uncreated things. Things that are shakeable, breakable, and losable versus things that are unshakable, unbreakable, and unlosable. If those who heard God speak when he shook the earth didn't escape his punishment, we won't escape God's punishment from him who speaks from heaven, who said, once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's God speaking. That's God acting, shaking heaven and earth. So Esau lost his birthright on earth, but if we hold on to our heavenly birthright, faithful to the end, we will receive an inheritance that cannot be taken away, eternal in the new heavens and the new earth. God promises judgment for those who refuse to listen, as certainly as he promises 
salvation and the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth to those who listen to him. The point here is not just hearing, but obeying what we hear from God, acting on it, being doers of the word, not just hearers. Try thinking of it like this. We all like listening to music and, and messages of our choice. That's why platforms like Spotify and Apple Music are so popular. We can curate our own albums of favourite music and podcasts and listen till our heart's content. But there are some things in life that we also need to hear and act on which cut across our comfortable enjoyment of life's pleasures because they're too important to miss. Imagine you're on the couch listening to your favourite podcast when you're interrupted by your father and he's shouting at you to take your headphones off. Your natural inclination might be, oh dad, I'm listening to Pastor Carl's Thinking Theology podcast and it's so interesting, can't I just follow that through and I don't want it to be interrupted, can't I just finish it? But if we pause Pastor Carl long enough to take off our headphones and listen to our father, we might be surprised at why he's taken the action that he has. He says, I need your full attention now, son. The house next door is on fire and I need you to get our garden hose and be spraying it over the roof and the walls while I call triple zero. Whoa. No wonder. He says, see to it. And verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Our Father from heaven. We can't cherry pick what we like about his words. If we are God's firstborn sons and daughters and we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, then effort and energy and sweaty cooperation is required. We can't sit smugly on our birthright and we, we've got to get up off our backsides and do something with it. We've got to be active in our faith. We must receive what we have received from God thankfully and with awe and worship him and serve him with reverence. So we worship God acceptably with reverence and awe remembering that our God is a consuming fire. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 4.24 and it occurs at the end of God's sentencing of Moses for his disobedience and his judgment of Israel for their idolatry. Moses didn't get to enter the land of promise, but only saw it from a distance, from another mountain. It is much like what we're going through with COVID-19, with this pandemic. If we want to hold on to our freedoms under COVID-19, we better follow the directions. If we just want to do things our way, there'll be a price to be paid, which we're seeing in Victoria. We'll have to humble ourselves enough, restrain our own inclination sufficiently to do what's needed, what we're told to do. We need to be thankful for the freedoms that we have in our country, 
And if we're going to continue to enjoy some of those freedoms, we've got to follow the government regulations. And it's just like that with God. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with humble reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright as firstborn for a pittance. Hold on to your heavenly birthright. Don't give it away. Don't trade it for, for just one meal, just for one sexual encounter, just for, for that one thing that you've set your heart on. God won't play along with you. He draws that line in the sand and he speaks sternly enough to warn us. God promises judgment for those who refuse to listen to him as certainly as he promises blessings to those who hear and obey him. The point here is not just hearing, but doing, as we've heard. So don't be like Esau. Don't sell your birthright. Prize the grace you've received from God. Learn to appreciate how the new covenant brings you to the living God through Jesus. Don't trade it for anything else. See to it that you don't give up the grace of God because if you do, the consequences can be irreversible. Hold on to what you've received by God's grace for all it's worth. See to it that you listen to this living God serve him humbly and be thankful to the end of your days let's pray our gracious God and heavenly father thank you for the riches of your mercy in Jesus thank you for his perfect sacrifice for our sins reconciling us to you as our great high priest thank you that through your amazing grace, we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken by an earthquake, can't be pummeled by a tsunami, can't be plundered by an enemy. Help us to prize and treasure the everlasting inheritance you've promised us by your mercy and grace. Help us to know that we have come to you, the living God, the judge of all, and that we can come confidently knowing you will not rebuff or reject us because we have your perfect high priest, Jesus, on our side. Forgive us for the times we've forgotten you, Lord, when we've relied on ourselves and fallen flat on our face. Forgive us for the times we've not heeded your all-wise words of counsel and command. And we've flirted with immorality and the other idols of this world. Give us ears to obey you and hearts that worship you. May we praise you with heaven-born songs of love and allegiance. Fill us again with your spirit that we may be holy as you are holy. And teach us to love our neighbour as ourselves that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. Be with us as we meet with one another in these earthly buildings. 
listening to your words from heaven and celebrating a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your Son, the Son of your love, the Son who promises us more than we could ever ask or imagine, because you are a God who gives us the best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.